Welcome to Aquafarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice, uh, the supporting sponsor of Aquafarm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is a warm, sunny uh, May 14th here in Johnson City, and we have quite a bit to talk about. So let's get into it. On May 8th, the FDA approved via the accelerated approval process, surprise, uh, selpercatinib. Uh, for three diseases with RET mutations, making this our first RET inhibitor. Uh, those diseases are metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with RET fusion uh, alteration, uh, medullary thyroid cancer for those ages 12 and above with a RET mutant, and uh, thyroid cancer uh, in those 12 and over with a RET fusion uh, alteration who uh, have uh, already received or are not candidates for iodine 131 or radioactive iodine. So uh, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about the um, about the thyroid cancer uh, approvals. I'm going to focus mostly on uh, the lung cancer. So just real quick, thyroid cancer 101. You can classify these, and I think of it as three buckets, kind of like uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, indolent, an intermediate, and then an aggressive. So the intermediate uh, are your papillary and follicular thyroid cancers. Uh, your intermediate is medullary thyroid cancer, which was one of these approvals for selpercatinib, and then the aggressive form of thyroid cancer is anaplastic thyroid cancer. Um, and I mention that because there is a difference between RET mutants, like the medullary thyroid cancer uh, indication, and RET fusion, which is the lung cancer approval. So what does this all mean, RET? Well, let's talk about RET. He's a friend of mine. No, that's true. He is. Bad joke. Uh, so RET fusions in solid tumors um, is a really nice review article in Cancer Treatment Reviews by Andrew Lee, L.I., and others from, from last fall in 2019, um, and all the authors, I believe, were from the University of Maryland. So RET, first of all, stands for rearranged during transfection, where the RE is re and rearranged, and the T is transfection. And it's a fairly typical receptor tyrosine kinase with at least four possible ligands. So a lot of different, not a lot, but four different ligands can uh, set off RET uh, phosphorylation. And normal RET signaling is involved in uh, the kidney, uh, neuronal development, uh, sperm stem cell maintenance, which is something that's interesting since it's approved in, in adolescent males. Um, RET is expressed in many tumors, so breast, especially apparently hormone-resistant uh, breast cancer cell lines, pancreatic cancer, renal cell carcinoma, prostate cancers, neuroblastoma, and small cell lung cancer. But RET fusions in general... Uh, you have this, you know, a rearrangement of RET and some other uh, stimulator region that leads to this oncogene. Um, and as far as what we know, all the RET fusions to date preserve the RET tyrosine kinase binding pathway, uh, therefore making them amenable targets to RET inhibitors. Um, in papillary thyroid cancer, there are at least 13 types of fusion proteins that, that have been identified. In fact, um, just to give you an example, uh, the most common one is CCDC6-RET, which is sometimes called RET-PTC, so it's somewhat pathognomonic for papillary thyroid cancer. And then another one, uh, NCOA4-RET, those two make up more than 90% of the RET fusions found in papillary thyroid cancer. As far as the prognosis with RET fusions in papillary thyroid cancer, there's some contradictory information. But what is interesting, at least to me, from an historical perspective, is that 22% of papillary thyroid cancer patients um, that were diagnosed in the aftermath of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had RET papillary thyroid carcinoma uh, rearrangements. Uh, and around 35 to 70% of papillary thyroid cancer patients in the Chernobyl area also had RET rearrangements. 
Now in lung, RET rearrangements make up like one to three percent, one to three percent of non-small cell lung cancers. Um, that's you know when you're talking more than two hundred thousand cases of lung cancer a year, you're talking to two to six thousand cases of RET rearranged non-small cell, non-small cell lung cancer a year. Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot, but by comparison, CML is only about eight thousand cases in the United States a year. Um, now. See if this sounds familiar. RET rearrangements have primarily or especially been found in those who are female, younger, under the age of 60, non-smoking, and have an adenocarcinoma as a histology, which sounds a lot like uh, what where we identified EGFR targeting TKIs to work before we knew that we were looking at EGFR mutations. Uh, you go back and listen to the very f- second podcast I ever released on this feed, uh, Tales of Brave Aressa, for kind of a history behind that. Now, the RET... Uh, fusions we see in lung cancer are a little bit different than what we see in papillary thyroid cancer. Uh, KI5FB RET is uh, in 70 to 90% of RET fusion prostate cancers, where our old friend from papillary thyroid cancer, CCDC6, in about 10 to 25%. Uh, so that makes up, uh, oh, and then there's another category that's 28%. Uh, so th- those are the, the main ones there, are the, the KI5, FB, and CCD6 as far as lung cancer. Now, these RET fusions can coexist with EGFR mutations in people who have already received an EGFR TKI. And they're what uh, researchers refer to as immune cold. So they don't tend to respond well to immunotherapy, uh, have low PDL1 uh, expression, and low response to CTLA4 inhibiting antibodies or targeting antibodies like ipilimumab. And of course, there are there are other diseases where there are RET fusions, and now that we have one approved, folks will start to use it off-label in genomics clinics and precision guided therapy clinics, and folks who have, like, say, Foundation One testing via NGS uh, and don't have any uh, other options. So here are some of the disease states where you might see a RET inhibitor used after patients have exhausted all treatment options. Uh, ovarian uh, RET fusions are seen in 1.9%, 3.2% of salivary gland tumors, Pancreatic cancer, 0.6%, and cancer of unknown primary, 0.7%. Colorectal cancer, 0.2 to 1.6, and breast, 0.16, maybe a little bit higher in those who are hormone refractory. So, uh, you know, th- there are more RET fusions out there, and I'm sure we'll see more studies coming out with uh, selpercatinib, um, which now we'll, we'll talk more about selpercatinib. First thing, you know, if you're trying to figure out how to pronounce these drugs, I think it's helpful to have a cadence. So for me, I think of the old Mary Poppins song, probably because I've been watching a lot of Disney Plus with the kids, uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, like selpercatinib is now FDA approved. Uh, so selpercatinib is how I say it. Uh, and its approval is based on the Libretto 001 study looking at uh, RET alterations um, Usually with a variety of ing- uh, variety of sequencing or vi- variety of testing, mostly NGS or next generation sequencing, and this is the lung cancer study, which looked at 105 patients who were previously treated, and that yielded uh, an overall objective response rate of 64%, and then 39 who were treatment naive, who had an objective response rate of 85%, which was um, you know an absolute improvement of 20% in response rate over those who were previously treated. Um, uh, so similar to um, capmatinib, which we talked about last week, the response seems to be 
higher in those in the first line setting, which fits with the general trend we see that um, you're usual, usually for a drug, the drug works best in the first line, and then once you get to the second line, there's more tumor heterogeneity. It's likely that there are other mutations that are co-driving beyond RET uh, in the second line setting in this patient population. Now, there are some other RET TKIs that are already out there and that have been studied in non-small cell lung cancer with RET fusion positive disease. Uh, cabozantinib uh, had a response rate of 28%, vandetinib 47% in one trial, and 18% in a different trial. And these are all phase one or phase two studies. And linvatinib 16%. And all of these studies, uh, you know, have around 20 patients in them. But you see response rates, uh, let's say 30%, 40% at the highest and selpercatinib is having a response rate of 64% in the previously treated population and 85% in treatment naive. Again, that treatment naive cohort was small, fewer than 40 patients. Uh, now, there's a lot of Oncopharm nuggets for, for selpercatinib. So let's start with the basics. The dose is 160 milligrams by mouth, BID. Uh, there is weight-based dosing for that pediatric indication for 12 to 18. So if you're under 120 kilograms, um, uh, sorry, under 50 kilograms, the dose is 120 milligrams. So weight-based dosing available is 40 and 80 milligram tablets. So you're talking four caps a day probably. Now, the drug can be given with or without food unless the patient is taking a PPI because absorption is acid dependent. So people on a PPI need to take this with food. Um, if you're taking an H2 receptor antagonist, you need to separate and take selpercatinib two hours before like your Pepsid or 10 hours later. Now that's based off of someone taking uh, an H2 receptor antagonist once a day. Uh, if you have GERD and you're taking Pepsid or Famotidine, you're probably taking it twice a day, in which case we don't know how well this drug would be absorbed, in which case I would recommend maybe switching to a PPI and then taking selpercatinib with food. That's what we know would be uh, uh, workable based on the PI, the best drug information answer. But I also think based on looking at the data and the absorption of AUC with and without food with PPIs that you could take uh, selpercatinib with a small meal if you're on an H2 receptor antagonist. And if you're on another antacid like Tums, you just use the two and two rule, take it two hours before the Tums or selpercatinib two hours after the Tums. Now, selpercatinib inhibits wild type RET as well as quote, multiple mutated RET isoforms, including the big ones in lung cancer, CCDC6 and KIF5B, as well as uh, several other ones. It also inhibits FGFR1, 2, and 3, although it's not that potent, but also inhibits FGFR1, or sorry, VEGFR1 and VEGFR3, and the VEGF inhibition seems to be more potent than FGFR. Uh, and I'm basing that judgment not off, not off of in vitro affinity or potency data, but off of our toxicity profile, which we'll see later. Actually, we're going to talk about it right now. Uh, so when we look at the warnings, precautions for selpercatinib, uh, there's a box, not a box warning, but a labeled precaution for hepatotoxicity. Elevated LFTs were seen in about 50% of patients, 8% of those being a grade 3 or 4 toxicity, which is at least uh, an ALT or AST that rises to five times the upper limit of normal. So you're talking around 200 to 800 range. Um, therefore, LFTs need to be checked every two weeks for three months and then monthly thereafter. The median time to onset of transaminitis was about four weeks. Uh, hypertension was seen in 35%, and we know that to be a tried and true VEGF inhibition toxicity. Uh, in 17% of patients, that was a grade 3, which is a systolic above 160 or diastolic above 100, and 0.1% grade 4, which would have been basically a hypertensive urgency situation. Treatment was with typical blood pressure medications and uh, 
the blood pressure needs to be checked after the first week of treatment. So already in our first two warnings, we see once a patient starts sulpercatinib for ret fusion positive lung cancer, you gotta check their blood pressure a week later and their LFTs and a whole bunch of other labs two weeks later. Uh, so do they need to come in to do their blood pressure check? Can they check it at home? All areas uh, of a future discussion. Uh, QTC prolongation uh, can be seen with this drug. A QTC interval of more than 500, 500 milliseconds uh, using the uh, QTCF, the Fredricia, I think, although it could be Framingham. There are two, there are Q, two correction formulas that could be abbreviated QTCF. Anyway, QTC above 500 was seen in 6%. An absolute increase of more than 60 milliseconds, which is a big increase, was seen in 15% in cancer patients. Uh, now, the average was like 10.6 in healthy patients, but we saw it go above 60% in 15% of patients with cancer, which is a pretty big, pretty big deal. Um, now, uh, I'm reading here, quote, uh, Selpercatin was not studied in patients with known, you know, long QT, prolonged QT syndrome, or clinically significant acute cardiovascular disease, or recent MI. So patients with cardiovascular disease, we don't know how much that QTC is going to go up. We know patients with cancer, QTC was prolonged more so than healthy patients. Cancer patients uh, with cardiovascular disease, you would expect it to go up even more. Uh, therefore, you need to check your EKG, your electrolytes, and TSH at baseline and periodically. And the TSH checking is specific for the QTC interval prolonging effect based on the PI, but you can also see hypothyroidism with this drug as well. So another good reason to check TSH. Uh, another VEGF toxicity, hemorrhage, uh, was seen uh, grade 3 hemorrhage in 2.3% of patients, including three deaths, which was less than 1%. Those fatal events were a cerebral hemorrhage, a trachocyte hemorrhage, and hemoptysis uh, leading to death. Uh, and this is maybe the strangest one, because if we talk about, you know, our VEGF toxicities, hypertension, hemorrhage, there's an impaired wound healing toxicity later, uh, embryofetal toxicity, those warnings precautions make sense. But for a TKI to have this warning statement about hypersensitivity reactions, that's a little strange. Now, certainly lots of drugs cause rash, like Bactrim and, and Steven Johnson syndrome. We're used to that, but about 4%... 4.3% of patients, 1.6% severe hypersensitivity. The median time to onset for this is two weeks. And listen to this. It doesn't sound like anything else I've, I've ever encountered or heard about or else I'm forgetting, but fever, rash, arthralgias and myalgias with concurrent thrombocytopenia or transaminitis. Uh, now how, and it's strange, right? So I said again, fever, rash, arthralgias, myalgias, and concurrent thrombocytopenia or transaminitis, and that was seen in 4.3% of patients. Now the treatment is, quote, corticosteroids at a dose of one mg per kg and to hold selpercatinib. Uh, the PI doesn't say uh, one mg per kg daily, twice a day, every hour. Uh, it doesn't give you the frequency. It doesn't say which corticosteroid. Um, Obviously, the dosing of prednisone would be very different than the dosing of hydrocortisone or dexamethasone. Um, uh, I did reach out to the FDA's Drug Information Office, CEDAR, and they did uh, tell me via personal communication on email that it's one mg per kg per day of prednisone. Uh, so let's look out for the see if they update the PI, which uh, I assume uh, that they would. Okay, other toxicities uh, with selpercatinib, dry mouth, 39%, diarrhea, 37%, only 3.4% grade 3, which would be more than seven bowel movements uh, in excess of baseline or hospitalization, edema in 33%, rash in 27%, thrombocytopenia in 33%, uh, and again, that thrombocytopenia could be independent uh, of the hypersensitivity or part of the hypersensitivity. Um, let's see, uh, decreased white count in 43%, 
now as far as those um, cytopenias, a, a grade three or four cytopenia was only seen in about two to three percent here with regards to platelets or white counts. So uh, probably you're going to see a little bit of a decrease in counts, but rarely would you expect, say, your platelets to go to, to less than 50. Uh, an increase in creatinine was seen in 37%. Um, and uh, they do recommend uh, alternative markers of renal function. This has to do with um, not OCT2 inhibition, but MATE1 inhibition with selpercatinib. That's the, the leading theory. As far as some miscellaneous ADME, uh, you know, the absorption that we know is pH dependent, although the viability is good, about 73%. It's mostly protein bound. Of course, it's metabolized by CYP3A4. Uh, it's got a half-life of 32 hours, which times five is about one week. So there is actually a recommendation because of that warning about impaired wound healing to hold the drug for a week uh, before any elective procedure, at least two weeks after a, a surgery, uh, and, and until you have good wound healing. Um, we already talked about the drug interaction with PPIs, which is easy to overcome by having uh, somebody take the drug with food that, that mitigates any loss of absorption here. But there's some other drug interactions with this we got to worry about. Uh, of course, you know, azole and fungals, 3 4 inhibitors are going to increase the concentration. Of course, 3 4 inducers will decrease the concentration. We're kind of used to that. Uh, now, moderate 3 4 inhibitors are also problematic, so they actually tested. I'll give them kudos. They tested diltiazem, fluconazole, and verapamil as moderate 3 4 inhibitors, and the AUC increase of selpercatinib from 60 to 99%, so almost a doubling of exposure with some of these drugs. Uh, so they recommend to decrease the dose by 25% in, uh, in, if it's taken in combination with dilt or fluconazole, and to monitor the QT interval, especially if you're using a drug like, say, fluconazole, which may also prolong the QT interval by itself. So big thing there with the drug interactions, not just with regards to inhibiting the metabolism, but some of those drugs, like clarithromycin, would be a big one as a 3 or 4 inhibitor and a drug that prolongs the QT interval. Selpercatinib is also an inhibitor of 2C8. You know, it's going to increase the AUC of replaganide, uh, you know, almost threefold, 188%. Good news, there aren't a whole lot of 2C8 substrates that we use in practice. Torsamide might be the only one that you would encounter, and you can easily use a different diuretic for those patients. Uh, it is also a 3A4 inhibitor, so it increases the exposure of midazolam by about 50%. So it's a weak inhibitor of CYP3A4. Uh, usually we say, you know, a weak inhibitor of 3A4 doesn't really matter. Uh, I'll give you an example of a, of a time I've seen a weak inhibitor uh, be clinically relevant, and that would be palbocyclic or Ibrance, which is a CYP3A4 inhibitor. It's a weak 3A4 inhibitor, which means it only increases the AUC by about 50%. So one milligram becomes 1.5 milligrams. Um, but we had a patient on palbociclib who uh, was newly started on Ibrance, had been stable on a fentanyl patch for a while, and after starting palbociclib, suddenly started to experience some opioid toxicity uh, several days later. And fentanyl is metabolized by CYP3A4, palbo a weak 3A4 inhibitor. So this patient's like 25 mic per hour patch of fentanyl suddenly became 37.5 very quickly uh, before tolerance could develop uh, and before it was necessary. And then I mentioned this earlier, it inhibits MATE1, which is a renal transporter uh, that is, of which creatinine is a substrate, so that likely explains that increase in creatinine that we saw in uh, like a third of patients uh, on the study. Okay, so that's selpercatinib. Quite a bit there on the very first RET inhibitor that's on the market. Uh, but there's more, unfortunately. There's only something coming out. So in, in May 8th, the FDA also approved Olaparib, or Limparza, uh, which was FDA approved with Bevacizumab for the first-line maintenance treatment 
of ovarian cancer, primary peritoneal carcinoma, or fallopian tube uh, cancer. Uh, in patients who had a complete response or partial response after first-line uh, platinum-based chemo and had homologous repair deficiency, like BRCA1 mutations. Uh, this is based on the uh, Paola study, Paola1, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine December 19, 2019. Now, we've, we've known that PARP inhibitors work in the first-line maintenance, you know, right after they have their, their debulking surgery, their adjuvant chemo. We know that PARP inhibitors work really well in folks that have BRCA mutations, uh, that have germline somatic, deleterious BRCA mutations, and other homologous repair deficiencies. We know that there are a couple approvals for PARP inhibitors like that. What do we know about maintenance bevacizumab? It's, it's okay. If you go back a year or so, uh, bevacizumab was approved, actually it was 2018. It was approved in the maintenance setting, so, so you give you know, your platinum-based chemo plus BEV and then BEV maintenance. There are two studies that showed some benefit in PFS, um, but neither showed an improvement in overall survival. Um, and, and one of those studies, you know, from the time it was published until they got FDA approval was like five years later. So really kind of funny. And the, the, the progression-free survival benefit is modest from two studies and no overall survival benefit. So you know, it's not uniform acceptance of using bevacizumab as maintenance. So in that backdrop, let's look more at Paola 1. So you had about 800 patients who had received platinum-based chemo with BEV uh, uh, for uh, upfront therapy for six cycles, randomized two to one to either uh, Olaparib plus BEV or BEV alone. Uh, and the median PFS for all the patients was 22 months versus 17 months, you know, modest benefit in PFS. But for those that were BRCA mutated, uh, that difference was 37 months versus 22 months, so much larger magnitude of benefit. Uh, and if you look at those that had non-BRCA mutations but homologous repair deficiency, uh, you had about the an even larger difference, 37 months median PFS versus 17 months. So big differences in those that had homologous repair deficiency. Now, so what that tells you is if you've got a BRCA mutation or homologous repair deficiency, Olaparib plus BEV is, is better at preventing your disease from coming back with ovarian cancer than Bevacizumab, okay? That's not the question we need to ask. The question that needs to be asked is adding BEV to Olaparib better than just using a PARP inhibitor by itself? This study doesn't answer that question. So what does it mean? I don't know. So we're going to move on to Embrave 150, which just was published... Uh, last night today uh, in this week's edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. So Embrave 150 is a tizolizumab plus bevacizumab uh, versus serafinib in unrecyclable hepatocellular carcinoma. Now you might be asking, boy, a tizolizumab and bevacizumab are being studied a whole lot together. Why is that? Well, they're both made by the same drug company. It's a little bit like if, if I went to the grocery store and our local grocery store is Ingalls, the Southeastern brand, and, and I buy Ingalls shampoo. On the back, it's going to say, this shampoo works best with Ingalls conditioner. Like for best results, use Ingalls conditioner. Or if I bought Ingalls brand spaghetti, they'd say, this spaghetti tastes best with Ingalls brand spaghetti sauce, right? That's probably what they're doing here. Now, uh... Serafinib is uh, the kind of standard of care for unresectable HCC, hepatocellular carcinoma. Linvatinib has recently been shown to be non-inferior to serafinib and, and received FDA approval. So before we go into a little bit of the pivotal study that got this improved in BRAVE 150, uh, let's go back to 2008, the SHARP study, which got uh, serafinib approved um, based on an improvement in overall survival versus placebo. 
And it was about a two and a half to three month improvement in median overall survival. So what we see here with atizolizumab and Bev versus serafinib is, uh, you know, a modest improvement in median uh, overall survival. Hazard ratio is 0.58. Uh, Six-month overall survival was 84% versus 72%. That is reported. And if you just eyeball test the Kaplan-Meier curves, the 12-month OS is 70% versus 55% in favor of atizolizumab and Bev. So if you if you look at it this way, if you go to like some fifth-grade math, serafinib was better than placebo by a little bit. Atizolizumab Bev was better than serafinib by just a little bit more. The difference between atizabev versus serafinib was larger than serafinib versus placebo. Now, you can't make that comparison. For example, the, the median overall survival for serafinib in the SHARP study 12 years ago was just under 11 months. Now it's 13 months with serafinib. And it's not that serafinib is a better drug now than it was 10, 15 years ago. It's that we have second-line options now for serafinib. And the sequencing we know can be important in how these patients do in the long run. What is unknown about this combination, uh, if you're using immunotherapy in a patient population, you'd like to know if pdl one expression predicts toxicity. That hasn't been shown yet in HCC. Uh, and they only had about a third of their patients uh, even tested for PDL1 either in the tumor or in uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in the sample. Uh, but it does appear that patients in the Bev atizolizumab arm had slightly higher percentages of PDL1 expression in the 36% that we know about. Um, so it seems like a good option. I will point out that all of these patients in the study were child QA. Uh, SHARP study, 95% child PUA. So we're only talking about the healthiest livers of folks with HCC. Most of the HCC, my folks, folks I see in my practice, have child PUB or C and aren't candidates for therapy. Um, there was a relatively high rate of grade 5 toxicity in this study, like 5%. Uh, and if you just look at hemorrhage events in the atizolizumab bevacizumab arm, five people died due to bleeding to death. 1.5% uh, of the whole cohort died from bleeding to death. Now, some of that was like an uh, esophageal varices bleeding, which they probably had because of underlying cirrhosis, but maybe that was exacerbated by bevacizumab. But there were also three GI hemorrhages, so um, certainly a toxic regimen, and we have no idea how much more toxic it would be in, in child QB or C. So keep that in mind. If, if, if this is being considered in one of your patients, make sure they meet the inclusion criteria of this study because it does appear to be pretty toxic, not to mention really, really pricey. Okay. Two more real quick updates. Going to try and get this done in 30 minutes. So uh, Navari, who uh, did the olanzapine paper a couple years ago for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, has now published something in JAMA Oncology of 30 patients, teensy-tiny study, of patients with cancer-associated nausea and vomiting. Not chemo-induced, but nausea and vomiting because of their cancer, which is a lot harder to treat than treating chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. So these patients had a median nausea scale score of 9 on a scale of 1 to 10. And then they were randomized to a lanspine 5 milligrams a day uh, or placebo. And they looked like a week later to see uh, what those scores did. Well, the placebo group stayed at 9. The olanzapine 5 milligrams a day group went from 9 to 2. So there's not a lot of uh, study of this uh, problematic disease, which is cancer-associated nausea and vomiting. So now there's some evidence, small evidence, that olanzapine is helpful. Now, of course, if you if this was compared to, you know, what I recommend in these patients is around-the-clock, um, you know, ondansetron and around-the-clock uh, compazine, it probably would have been similar. I mean, you're hitting the same receptors uh, with that combination as with the lanzapine, most likely. And then finally, the last study to talk about is, I believe uh, it's supposed to be clarity. It's C-L-A-R. 
IDHY because it is a study of ivocidinib, an IDH1 inhibitor for IDH1 mutant uh, chemorefractory cholangiocarcinoma. This was published this week in Lancet Oncology. Now, IDH1 mutant uh, mutations are found in about 13% of cholangiocarcinomas. Uh, and these patients had received one or two lines of chemo and were randomized uh, to placebo or ivacidinib. About 180 patients, they were randomized two to one. So like 120 received ivacidinib and 60 received placebo. Uh, the median PFS uh, was in favor of ivacidinib, 2.7 months versus 1.4 months. That doesn't sound like a big difference, but the hazard ratio is 0.37, which is pretty, pretty low. And if you look at these Kaplan-Meier curves, the curves really start to separate. Uh, you know, after two months. The, there's uh, just a little separation there, but then they really, the separation impressively kind of expands uh, after two months. Um, and this appears to be due to ivacidinib causing differentiation of these cholangiocarcinoma cells. There was only a 2% objective response rate. So this drug is prolonging or delaying disease progression. So it's playing defense really as well as what it looks like. Um, no differentiation syndrome in cholangia like you would see in uh, hematologic malignancies. Uh, this was a phase three study. Uh, my guess is they're going to go for an FDA approval for this. Um, the overall survival curve, which was very immature, looks okay. Uh, but they did to... Um, from an ethical standpoint, they did allow crossover for all patients in the placebo arm um, to ivacidinib, which might muddy uh, the overall survival. So even if it doesn't so overall survival, my guess is FDA would approve this uh, based on a fairly, progress, fairly impressive progression-free survival benefit. Well, that's uh, an exhaustive list of what's gone on in the last week, uh, only with regards to, uh, to Oncopharm and uh, drugs to treat cancer. Uh, thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetNip. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at OncopharmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.